Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hello, I'm Michael Hawk, and this is Nature's Archive. Each episode, I strive to bring you the very best guests to help us deepen our understanding of nature. I produce the podcast as a personal passion, so if you enjoy it, will you please consider subscribing, rating, and sharing this episode? It really does help. You can also support me on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. With that support, you can get extras, previews, access to ask questions of my guests, stickers, and more. Check out patreon.com slash nature's archive. Now on to the show. My guest today is Dr. Carlisa Colwood. Dr. Colwood is the director of the Community Conservation Education and Action Program for the Perry Institute for Marine Science and an expert on the coral reef fisheries of the Bahamas. Dr. Colwood has a PhD in ecosystem science and policy from the University of Miami in Florida. Today, we talk about the coral reef systems of the Bahamas, how they function, their overall health, and a couple important species that call the reefs home, the spiny lobster and the parrotfish. In fact, Dr. Colwood's research and expertise goes well beyond these animals and their ecology and into the social and cultural impacts of policy and fishing at the reefs. Dr. Colwood tells us how an emerging parrotfish fishery adds new pressures to the coral ecosystem and how the spiny lobster fishery, driven partly by few regulations for Bahamian citizens, has evolved to include new forms of fishing that are more productive for the fishers, but also put fishers in conflict with each other. And these new methods have unknown long-term ecological impacts. As you'll hear, Dr. Colwood combines ecological knowledge with building trusting relationships with the people on the islands, allowing her to deeply understand the motivations and rationale of the fishers. This understanding allows her to assess and recommend policy responses that strike a balance between reef health and the needs and motivations of the people on the islands. You can find Dr. Colwood on Twitter at sci underscore in underscore color and Instagram at science underscore in underscore color. It's a fascinating set of topics today, so please enjoy. Dr. Colwood, thank you for joining me today. No problem. Thank you for having me here. And I want to admit up front, I had a little bit of a rough night last night. My smoke alarms all went off at 1 a.m. And it took me a while to settle down from that. Sleep was interrupted, but hopefully I've had enough caffeine and can be coherent for the discussion today. Yeah, that sounds like a lot to deal with. <laughs> so to, to jump in then, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how you got interested in nature in the first place? Because you have a very fascinating area of research that I'm looking forward to talking about today. Sure. So I am originally from the Virgin Islands, born in St. Thomas, which is U.S. Virgin Islands, but most of my family is from Tortola, British Virgin Islands. So I spent a lot of my childhood in Tortola growing up right on the beach. Our family property was on the beach, and my very earliest memories are literally being thrown into the water and swimming and diving before I could even walk. So for me, being outdoors and being in near and around water has been something that has come naturally because it was something that I was immersed in at a very young age and something I did with, with all my cousins. So in that environment, so I grew up in the landlocked central part of the United States. And as a result, I think I am lacking in my knowledge of, of ocean environments, marine environments. So I'm wondering, as you were growing up, I'm guessing that the coral reefs, the economic impacts of the marine environment, that was probably all integrated into education growing up? No, not necessarily. I mean, hmm. we were familiar because the work that our family did was tied to the ocean. 
my dad like fished mostly recreationally, but that was something that he did multiple times a week. So that understanding of needing a healthy ecosystem and needing healthy coral reefs, I didn't get that piece until I was probably in high school. So a lot of it came from like the interactions that we observed and that we saw based on the things that our family did. I see. Yeah, it's a little surprising to me. So then what was it about coral reefs that, that, that then made you take the next step and take that on as an academic endeavor? I think for me, I always found corals to be very interesting, partly because of how they look. They come in all of these really cool, fascinating colors and structures and sizes. But the fact that they're responsible for helping to create this ecosystem that has tons of variety of other organisms. And I think that's initially what drew me into the field of marine science is understanding how all of those things interact with each other and what that meant for us. And I realized I made a little bit of an assumption there. I said coral reefs in particular. So why don't you tell me exactly what your area of study was? Sure. My undergraduate degree was a double degree between marine science and biology. So it was pretty comprehensive. And then I went back for a master's in marine affairs and policy. And originally, I was going to study coral reef ecology and what that meant from a policy perspective. But then I switched to fisheries which is very closely tied to coral reefs because most of the important fisheries that make up the economic communities of a lot of the islands, the Caribbean islands where my research takes place, are dependent on coral reefs. So after my master's, I continued on into an interdisciplinary program for my PhD, which was focused specifically on ecosystem science and policy. And for that, I studied particularly the Bahamian spiny lobster fishery. Yeah, and that was something that when we met originally and you were telling me about some of your background, it really caught my ears. I always have gravitated personally towards multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary approaches because I think that often reveals certain relationships that get missed otherwise. So yeah, yeah. hopefully, we'll, I think we'll dive a lot into that today. And now you're at the Perry Institute for Marine Science. Can you tell me about that institute and what it is that you're focusing on? Sure. So the Perry Institute for Marine Science is a nonprofit organization that conducts marine science research to provide solutions to issues facing our oceans and human communities. So the mission of the organization is to provide science-based solutions for stewardship of marine species and ecosystems. And most of our recent efforts have been focused on reversing the decline of marine ecosystems, particularly coral reefs in the Bahamas and some other islands throughout the Caribbean. When I think about a couple of key things we're going to talk about today, and that's the parrotfish and the spiny lobsters, they do all relate to the coral reefs. So to level set a little bit about coral reef environments in the Bahamas and maybe in the Caribbean at large, because I know I am way too ignorant on that subject. Can you tell me just a little bit about coral life cycles? And I think you started to hit on the point that they're so fundamental to the ecosystem that surrounds the islands. Yeah, so corals themselves are invertebrate organisms, so meaning they don't have backbones. And when you look at an individual coral, you're actually looking at a colony of individuals. So each one, each time one of those uh, those tentacle-looking things, it's actually a polyp, 
and that's a single individual. So a coral colony is made up of multiple individuals of the same polyp. And when you have a coral reef, it's made up of multiple different species. So you have the polyps, the colonies, the reef, and then the ecosystem to put things into scale. Corals themselves are very interesting because as invertebrate animals, they feed in two ways. So they can use those polyps to to essentially snatch food like plankton out of the water. But also in the polyps, where they get their color from are from algae-based organisms called zooxanthellae, which do photosynthesis. And it's essentially a symbiotic relationship. So the corals give the zooxanthellae a place to live. And the zooxanthellae uses sunlight to create energy, which some of that energy gets passed off to the corals. So they work together in that way. So because of that relationship, you'll typically find corals in shallow water areas. Usually you're not finding them deeper than 60 to 70 feet because they need that access to sunlight to be able to get enough energy. But this is also why you find them a lot in tropical regions, because not only do they have that narrow depth range, they have a very narrow temperature range in which they can live in as well, as well as water clarity. All of these things play a role. But that's also why we're seeing a lot of issues with corals in recent years, primarily due to global climate change. So there has been a lot of shifting in the conditions that they've had to deal with, and that's causing stress on some species, some more than others. So once you have stressors on the corals, you also have stressors on the entire ecosystem and the other organisms that rely on them as well. That makes sense. And so many questions, and I will try to push back on my desire to spend an hour on coral reefs themselves. But (laughs) so when I think about climate change and the impact on coral reefs, I hear a lot about bleaching. And I had always associated bleaching with the pH of the water. My And my rudimentary understanding is that the more carbon there is in the air, the ocean kind of acts like a sink and it takes in all of this carbon. And then that changes the pH of the ocean that can have this deleterious mm-hmm. effect. It, is that roughly accurate? Or I'm sure there's a lot more to that story. Yes, that's accurate. And pH can definitely be one factor that contributes to bleaching. And those anthelae that I mentioned, so usually when you see bleaching in a coral, it's the loss of that zooxanthellae. So there's something that's triggering the zooxanthellae to either die or to just full on leave the coral. I see. And I'm assuming that some of the coral colonies are more sensitive than others. Like when bleaching occurs, is it the whole reef dies or is it subsets or what tends to happen there? It depends on what's causing the bleaching, but there are some species that tend to be more resilient than others. So for instance, one of the typical Caribbean species, which is Acropora, And there's two, there's Acropora palmata and Acropora cervicornis. Those are the ones that kind of look like deer antlers, if you can picture that in your head. So about 20, 30 years ago, something just completely wiped those out. And we weren't, they weren't seeing the same impact on some of the other coral species. And that resulted in an almost near extinction of that particular, of those two particular species, although they're now starting to bounce back which is awesome. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you said, depending on the cause. And the first thing that came to mind when you just said, depending on the cause, it might might be some species or the whole reef. But with climate change too, is ocean current changes. And you talked about sensitivity mm-hmm. to temperature. And I could just imagine mm-hmm. where if the current changed and suddenly you're bringing in much cooler water for some reason, right. that, that could be a death sentence to that ecosystem. Definitely. Yeah. Water temperature is one of those things that are so critical to coral reefs. You shift the water in either direction, warmer or colder, and there could potentially be drastic impacts on reef systems. So when I think of the Bahamas, it's a lot of islands. Are there reefs surrounding all the islands, some of the islands? And how would you characterize their health? Yes, the Bahamas is a very large, about 700,000 square kilometers, I believe. And there are coral reefs surrounding most of the islands. I'd say In my opinion, compared to a lot of other places around the Caribbean, the Bahamas has typically had one of the more healthier reef systems. Although recently, there has been the presence of a relatively new disease called stony coral tissue loss disease that appeared in the Bahamas in fall 2019, we think. And this is something, it's not just happening in the Bahamas, it's happening throughout the Caribbean. It was something that was discovered off of the Florida reefs back in 2014. Is it understood what is causing that? Not yet. Yeah, they're still not sure whether it's viral or bacterial or a combination of both. It is suspected that it is easily transported via the water. So things like ballast from ships or if you're diving in an area that has corals impacted with the disease, you could potentially be carrying the disease to other dive spots if you don't disinfect your gear properly. So there are some things that we're starting to figure out, but it's one of those things that, one, it's new, it spreads very quickly, and once a coral becomes infected with it, the entire coral colony could be dead in about two weeks So it's something that is pretty drastic that a lot of scientists are working very hard to figure out how to deal with it, in addition to all the other stressors that corals already have. I think it's so many like boats as vectors. There's so many things that that we carry, invasive species, diseases, so much. It's such a huge problem. And it's one of these things where that genie is not going back in the bottle, so to speak. (laughs) Disappointing, for sure. I guess maybe maybe on that down note, let's shift to to some of the positive things that you're working on. And so uh, the rough transition there, but but parrotfish. Mm -hmm. So parrotfish are these really beautiful looking fish that live in the coral reefs. And can you tell me a little bit about their association with the reefs and what they are and how they live and what you're doing with them in particular? Yeah, so as you mentioned, parrotfish are, there's several species of fish that are found living in close association with corals. So many people know parrotfish for being like the bright, colorful species. So if you're snorkeling or diving, you'll notice them immediately. And they're typically found around reefs and nibbling on corals and pooping sand. So everyone knows they eat coral and they poop sand. And in reality, what they're actually eating is the algae that's growing on the coral. And in nibbling the coral, the algae, they're actually, they actually are taking off pieces of the coral. And that's what's being processed out the other end as sand. So if you are on a white sandy beach in the Caribbean, most likely a good percentage of that sand came from parrotfish. 
But essentially what they do is their function in the ecosystem is to provide essentially a lawnmower type of service that helps to keep that algae in check and from overgrowing the coral. And this is a really important function that's done not only by parrotfish, but some other grazers, sea urchins and other types of fish actually do this grazing function to help reduce the algae that could smother reefs. And I was thinking about your description of what the parrotfish look like. The pictures I've seen, I've unfortunately have not seen one in real life. They have these like beaks, these really colorful beaks. And yes. and they look fairly large too. Like they're somewhat yeah. sizable. Uh, about how big are the species of parrotfish that you have? Depending on the species, they can get pretty large. I'm holding my hand up probably about like my sh- the length of my shoulders, shoulder to shoulders. I've seen parrotfish that size okay. and bigger. So they can get pretty big. If nothing's eating them and they have a good source of food, they're just going to keep growing. My understanding is that you've been investigating fishing of parrotfish by the fishing community and uh, what the impact has been on the fish themselves and the broader ecosystem. What questions are you looking to answer in that research? Hey, nature enthusiast, do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Sure. So I, like many people, had not realized that parrotfish was a chosen fish to eat by many people around the Caribbean and in some other places. Surprisingly, not in the Bahamas. People in the Bahamas, if they go fishing or if they go to a fish market, don't necessarily, hey, I want parrotfish. But in lots of other Caribbean islands, it has been the fish of choice, which to me was interesting because I see parrotfish and I see them eating corals and I don't think they would taste delicious from their food choice, but apparently they are very delicious from what I've heard. So the reason we wanted to study this is because if you're removing parrotfish from a reef ecosystem, you're also removing that ecosystem function that it's providing as that lawnmower service. So one of the things we wanted to do, especially here in the Bahamas, because anecdotally we had heard that there were people catching parrotfish and that they were not only catching parrotfish, but they were creating a market for parrotfish and selling parrotfish. So we really wanted to speak to fishers and understand, like, what were they doing with regards to parrotfish? Were they actually creating a fishery here that had not existed historically in the past? But also, what were their perceptions about catching, eating, and selling parrotfish? What were the reasons and drivers that they were doing this? 
and what policies and regulations would they be willing to follow if there were some put in place, particularly around parrotfish. And that last piece is really critical because in a place like the Bahamas, where there are so many islands, it's very spread out. They have very few fisheries officers. You really need to make sure that the stakeholders, that the people are going to follow the policies that are put in place. And they're actually going to regulate themselves because there's not enough capacity for the government to do it. So if you're going to put something in place, you need to make sure that it's going to be followed or else it doesn't matter. So a lot of my work really looks at, so what do the people who are going to be impacted by these policies, what are they thinking? How would they see themselves impacted by these systems? But also what would make it something worthwhile for them to be able to follow a particular policy? And if in the case of parrotfish, if it is creating a market, we also have to think about the other socioeconomic impacts that might come from creating a quote unquote blanket ban on fishing parrotfish especially if you're the sole provider for your family and you're fishing in order to feed your family and to earn money. And one of the things you're making a lot of money from is parrotfish. What happens when that ban comes across? So we really want to talk to people and understand where their heads and their perceptions are at before we make recommendations of what should be done to address the fishery and potential regulations and policies. When we talk about mm -hmm. fisheries, when I hear that word, I assume it's usually a regulated market. Like what, in your view, what is the definition of a fishery? Can it be informal? Is it always regulated? So I define fishery as a system where you take or remove fish. As simple as that. It doesn't have to be regulated. It could be very informal. And when we think about fisheries, it's three parts. So it's the people who are doing the fishing as well as the eating and selling, but it's also the fish and it's the habitat where they live. So you need all three to actually have a quote unquote fishery. Got it. That's really helpful because I think I was assuming more regulatory overhead in when I hear the word fishery, which kind of changes yeah. perspective. Mm -hmm. So in, in this case here, you're seeing a fishery emerge where people sometimes just to yes. provide for their families and maybe in other cases, it's more than that. And you talked about the policy decisions. And I apologize if I missed part of your response, but you mentioned as, mm -hmm. as much as a total ban on parrotfish fishing. Yes. So is that based on what has been found in terms of the impacts to the ecosystem? Is that on the table? Or are you still considering other less extreme measures from a policy standpoint. And who's making those decisions <laughs> out of curiosity? Uh, so I'm not making those decisions. So the government, the Bahamian government makes those decisions. And I think a total ban is definitely something that is on the table. We've seen in recent years that some other islands where parrotfish is more of a popular seafood choice that they have made that decision to do complete bans. And they've done that because they've seen the rapid decline of their coral reef systems and determined that a part of that was coming from the taking of parrotfish. So they've made those decisions to do complete bans. 
with your approach of really understanding the motivations of the people that are participating in this market, do you see solutions that provide a balance for people? A big part of it depends on education, honestly. So one of the things that I did during my research was ask people, what do you know about parrotfish and what they provide to the ecosystem? And also, what do you think would happen if more parrotfish were removed from the system? And from that, I think it was almost 200 fishers that we spoke to. We saw that most of them have a very general understanding of what parrotfish do. So they can identify, oh, it's eating something, it's eating, it's biting corals. So some think it's eating the coral, some know it's eating algae. It poops sand. Almost everybody knows that, but they don't recognize that it has a higher level function, like that, that there's a reason why it's biting the coral and eating the algae. So I think once you make that connection for people and also make the connection that if you leave parrotfish alone, like this is not only better for the reef, but it's better for the actual fisheries that are economically viable and culturally viable for the country. So there's a way to think about how you link those things so that they can see the benefits of not continuing to fish the species because it's going to help these other species that we have large fisheries for. Is it is it pretty easy for the fishers to shift their focus to a different species? I think it could be, especially as most fishers are not targeting parrotfish specifically. There are a small handful currently that are, and even those fishers have said that the reason they're targeting parrotfish is because someone has requested it. So they're not going out every day and saying, I got to catch parrotfish today. If they're intentionally targeting parrotfish, it's because someone has asked them to. So many times they're actually harvesting parrotfish as bycatch and if they catch it on their line, they can decide whether they keep it or toss it back. And some people will keep it and they'll just use it amongst their family. Or there have been some fishers who have outright said that once they fillet it, they'll sell it as grouper, which is a very high value fish. So they're misrepresenting the fish, which I know is very common in, in the world of yeah. fish. Yeah. Yes. Once it's sliced up, unless you're very good at telling your fish tastes apart, it might be difficult for you to know what you're eating. So it sounds like to, to get that sort of feedback from the fishers that you must have really developed good trusting relationships with them. Yeah. And I think that is a big part of the work. And it wasn't just me. We definitely worked in partnership with key collaborators on all of the different islands who helped connect us with fishers and other stakeholders to talk to and to share the survey with. But I think for me, a big part of my work is ensuring that communities are heard, that they feel heard, they feel seen and that they are given ways to contribute to the various processes that have an impact on their life. And oftentimes, depending on the systems and de depending on who's making the policies and what the policies are, many people don't have a say. And they don't even know what these policies are until they're enacted. And then all of a sudden, 
this thing that I used to do all the time is now illegal. And there was no connector in between to process and understand why the shift was made. Yeah, nobody likes surprises. And, and then when that surprise directly affects your livelihood, I can only imagine. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, you don't just flip a switch on policy decisions right. like that. What's the outlook then? What do you see happening? What are your next steps? Are, are there additional questions that you're seeking to answer right now with respect to this ecosystem relationship? Yeah, one of the things we're looking at at my organization is now that we know that there were the hints of this fishery, now that we know that it, there is a fishery, even if it is small, that exists, we want to take a better look at what the potential ecological impacts are on coral reefs. So really identifying some of the islands where there are some smaller islands where more parrotfish fishing is happening as opposed to other places in the Bahamas. So maybe using that as a way to study and make some correlations between the amount of parrotfish that are removed from the system and the health of the coral reefs and being able to link those together more specifically. Yeah, when I read a little bit about this relationship, my first thought was parallels to trophic cascades. There's lots of trophic cascades that happen mm -hmm. in marine environments some famous ones, and I've mentioned that on this podcast in the past. So it sounds like there's more to discover here with this, like how far yeah. the cascading impact of the parrotfish go down into the ecosystem. Exactly, exactly. And, and when we look at like health indicators of coral reef ecosystems, that grazing piece is a key indicator, like the amount of grazing that's happening locally, as well as the amount of grazers and the types of grazers too. So definitely plays a role in that cascading effect. So when we first met, I remember it was at a conference and we talked a bit about spiny lobsters. And I'm not sure if the spiny lobsters connect to your parrotfish endeavors or if this was just a shift in focus. So is there a relationship between your spiny lobster research and the parrotfish research? Because I'd like to transition into that spiny lobster <laughs> discussion. So the relationship is that both of these projects are interdisciplinary and that a big piece of my spiny lobster project was also looking at perceptions, motivations, and attitudes within the fishery to help guide management decisions down the line. So those things definitely align. I see. So let's just step back a little bit then and talk about the spiny lobster and what is it and what's its role in the ecosystem? Yeah, so spiny lobster are also invertebrates. Many people would probably recognize a spiny lobster if you've seen a lobster that does not have claws. So they have like really long antenna, no claws. When I was a kid, I didn't even realize that lobsters had claws. The only time I ever saw lobsters with claws was on cartoons. So I thought it was like a fictional thing <laughs> until like I moved to the States and I was like, oh, like this actually exists. So I think spiny lobsters are very cool. They're like other lobsters. They live on the reefs. They like really dark spaces. They like to hang out with other lobsters. And their function on a reef is the cleanup crew. They eat just about anything and everything that they can get their non-claws on, so to speak. Yeah. So 
just like parrotfish or, or many different species of parrotfish, and my understanding is spiny lobsters, there are lots of species of spiny lobsters. And in particular, is there one or is there a diversity of spiny lobsters in the Caribbean? In the Caribbean, I think there's only one that they might have some, there might be some subspecies, but there are some closely related lobster species like slipper lobsters and other ones like that, that also don't have claws. But in the Caribbean, it's particularly Panularis argus. You'll find that sometimes their range extends far up the eastern coast. Definitely in Florida, I want to say maybe to Georgia and South Carolina, but also all the way down to Brazil. Oh, wow. Big range. So they have a very wide range, yeah, throughout the Caribbean. And what led you to looking at the spiny lobsters? What really drove my interest about spiny lobsters was the shift in harvesting method by fishers in the Bahamas specifically. So they usually when you harvest spiny lobsters, you can do it by you dive, you look under a ledge on a reef to find those dark spots. And like they'll use a tickle stick to get it out and you can just snatch one up or you can spear fish spiny lobster, or you use lobster traps. So those have typically been the main methods used to harvest them. But now there's a relatively new method that's called condos. In some places, they're referred to as casitas. And easiest way to describe them, they are lobster traps that are not enclosed on all sides. So there's no door, There's no bottom on them. Lobster and other things can go in and out as they please, as opposed to a trap when something goes in, it's stuck in there until the fisher comes to collect it. There had been a lot of talk about how many condos were out across the banks of the Bahamas, but also that because of the condo use, it had resulted in a rise of conflicts amongst lobster fishers particularly in terms of like people literally fighting over lobster catch. So we take this fishery, which had been a relatively, quote unquote, easy and safe occupation and shifting to something where when fishers come across the same spot, now they're openly fighting each other to essentially get a catch I was really interested in understanding what was happening there, why the shift to the condos, but also why the use of condos was leading to these conflicts. Talking about the condos for a minute and then maybe into the, maybe it's a natural lead into the conflicts. So it's surprising to me to hear that there would be a method for catching fish that allows, or in this case, lobsters, (laughs) that allow them to come and go freely. How does it work if it's open on the sides and beneath? It's open, not all the way on the side. So it'll be like, imagine like it has a no front door, but it has a walls and the back and there's no bottom on it. And I'll get into that later because that relates to the conflicts. But how it works is it's essentially an artificial aggregation device that takes advantage of the things that spiny lobsters love. And what do they love? They love dark spaces and they love to be with lots of other spiny lobster. Mm. So once you get one lobster in there, a lot of other lobster are going to follow. And depending on the size of the condo, you could have anywhere from 100 to 200 individual lobsters underneath. And that makes harvesting of them much easier because before you actually had to go out to the reef 
and find them. But now if you have a condo down or you know where a condo location is, you can take your boat out to that condo. You can dive down with your bag, lift up the condo and just collect the 200 lobster that are there. And that's going to take you 20 minutes as opposed to the hour it would have taken you hunting on a reef. Is there any theory as to why, like you, you mentioned the lobsters like these dark places and they like hanging out with other lobster. The, the condos to me, like I, maybe my, what I have in my mind is not very accurate, but I'm thinking like almost a smoothed edged, like porcelain, or <laughs> I, I don't know what they're made of, but <laughs> something that, that like, why is the lobster finding that more attractive than the reef? Why would they even leave the reef? Uh, that is something yet to be discovered. We still don't understand the full ecological impacts of the condos. But one thing that is suspected is that the placement of the condos, they don't place them on the reefs. They actually place them in between seagrass habitats and reefs. So when you look at coastal ecosystems, it goes mangroves to seagrass to reef. And you usually have like patches of sand in between. So they're putting them in those patches of sand between the seagrass and the reefs. And biologically, juvenile lobster live in seagrass. And when they transition to adults, they make the walk out to a reef. So they're thinking that because of the placement of the condos, that they're actually catching these lobster on their journey out from the seagrass as they transition. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like a lot of fertile ground for research and discovery still as well. Yeah. And yes. it's funny. I say, I find myself Definitely. saying that like almost every episode I do when I'm interviewing my guests <laughs> is like just so much out there to learn still. You alluded to the fact that some of this conflict, and I think I can see where you're going with this based on the description you gave, but the fact that there's no bottom mm -hmm. to the condos mm -hmm. and the placements. So tell me a bit more about what is leading to the conflict among the fishers. Yeah. And I'll set a, I'll set a little bit of additional background. So in the Bahamas, if you are a Bahamian citizen, you have access to all resources. So if you are a citizen, whether or not you like fish for livelihood, if you wanted to fish, you have that right as a Bahamian citizen. You just have to follow whatever regulations are in place for that particular species. And there aren't many. So for things like lobster, there's a season for when you can fish for lobster. And there's also a size limit and you can't take any that are bearing eggs. And that those are all the limitations on the spiny lobster fishery for Bahamians. If you are someone who's a tourist and you're coming in to do recreational fishing, there's a bag limit of, I believe, six lobsters per person. But as a Bahamian these are your resources. It is open to you. And they will refer to both terrestrial and aquatic land as they call it, quote unquote, crown land, because they're one of the overseas territories of the UK. And I'm probably saying this completely wrong, but it's land for the citizens held in trust by the queen. So they refer to it as the crown land. So because these condos are not enclosed, many fishers take that to mean that when the lobster are inside the condos, they are still sitting on crown land. And that means that I, as a Bahamian, have every right to that lobster, regardless of whether or not I built that condo or set out that condo. 
Whereas when we contrast this to a lobster trap, those actually have to be licensed. So you have to pay for each of those traps. They have your name on them, and it is illegal for anyone to mess with the lobsters inside of that trap. So essentially, the trap has created private property, whereas the condos are seen as quote unquote open access to anyone who comes across them. Now, where the conflict comes in is that fishers who have a lot of resources and have the ability to spend lots of money on building hundreds and thousands of condos every season, and also the ability to spend money on fuel and big boats to be able to set these condos out across the Bahamas, they feel I've just invested a couple thousand dollars in this. These belong to me. Whereas the other fishers are going to use the crown land argument. And they also argue that many times these fishers with more resources are actually placing their condos near islands that have better coral reef habitat, i.e. better lobster habitat, right? Because their islands don't have a lot of lobster. So it doesn't make sense for them to put the condos near their islands. So the fishers with less resources, they can't travel as far. Some of them can't even afford fuel for a boat. So they still have to dive out on reefs. Or if they have a boat, they're only going out a very short distance for a couple of hours and then coming back in. Whereas the fishers with more resources can not only invest in all of these condos, but they can stay out at sea for sometimes six weeks or more before they have to go back in with their harvest. Very complicated, lots of moving parts and different <laughs> yes. incentive structures for people. Mm-hmm. So backing up to the trap versus condo, the I don't have as good a visual in my mind of what a trap looks like. Yeah, so the trap is going to be enclosed on all sides, and they usually have an opening near the top or side that allows something to crawl in, and then once it's in, they can't come back out. Okay, and then they're baited? Yeah, most traps and condos are actually baited. Okay, so what prevents someone with a condo from putting a bottom on it? Does, is it then classified as a trap and they'd have to, they'd be regulated in the structure that you described for traps? I think for it to be a trap, it has to, one, be made of a particular material, usually wood, so that it can decompose naturally over time. And it, it has to actually trap the lobster. Mm-hmm. So they have to not be able to come in and come out. So if you have that, then you can license it as a trap. And I should have mentioned they can, condos are made out of any and everything. So some people will actually construct actual wood structures that have sides and a top on them. Sometimes there's a metal galvanizer type top. Some people are using car hoods. Some people are using old washing machines. Some people are using hollowed out tree trunks. So it's dealer's choice with these condos. Yeah, that puts another perspective on it too. It's a lot of reuse of things that are on hand, which are essentially Mm -hmm. free, (laughs) I suppose, at that point. Yes. So if you can't, yeah, if you can't build them, you can find Mm -hmm. something to make one or turn into one. So this investigation that you've taken into the dynamic between 
the different fishers using the condos. Where has that led you to the environmental, economic, socioeconomic overlaps? What I found was that there are lots of varying interpretations of what's happening in the fishery. And those interpretations depend on resources, as I mentioned, but also on status. Some fishers or some islands have a higher status than other fishers, dependent on money, race, and other factors. But also that from my talks with fishers, I estimated that there's somewhere between one to two million condos spread across the Bahamas. And we don't have a good idea of what that actual number is. And we also don't know, as I mentioned before, what the impact is ecologically of having this high number of structures that are out there. And that's not even to mention what happens when a strong storm or a hurricane comes through and displaces all of these because they don't get collected afterwards. They're just lost. So then they become a ghost trap or a ghost condo. And who knows what impacts those are having because they're still there and the fishers are putting out more to replace the ones they've lost. So there's still a lot of unknowns. But I think the key thing, if we want to say that the fishery is sustainable, which was one of the other things I looked at with this research is that definition of sustainability How can we say that if we don't actually know what the level of effort is with regards to the method and how they're being collected? There's a lot of variables that would go into defining Mm -hmm. sustainability. So a major outcome of this research then is you need more research (laughs) to really understand this. (laughs) Yes, you need a lot of research. But I think, too, what was also clear is that we really need to talk to the fishers more than we do. I think in the Bahamas, as well as probably many other places throughout the Caribbean or places where they have the cultural history of fishing, these are people who have been fishing in their families for generations, or some of these fishers are long-lived. Like I've spoken to fishers who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and they are seeing firsthand the changes that are happening in the ecosystem And no one's talking to them. We're making all these guesses about what's happening and what we think is happening. And we have firsthand observations from people who have been there that have seen the changes and can describe the changes. And it's just a wealth of untapped information that I think we need to do a better job of accessing. That's also really interesting to me. I've been thinking a lot about the concept of shifting baseline syndrome. And have you heard of that? term in the context of, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I assumed it's fairly well known, but I only first came to learn about it last year. And for anyone listening who's not familiar with it, the, the way I describe it, and please improve my definition if you see room for improvement, people tend to baseline the health of an environment or ecosystem based on what they observed in their formative years. And that means Mm -hmm. that with each successive generation, the baseline has changed. And I would then go on to say it's very likely that the baseline has degraded (laughs) because someone my age perhaps wouldn't have seen the health of the ecosystem that existed for my parents or grandparents' generation. Does that sound about right? Yeah, no, that was a great, (laughs) that was a great way to define it. Yeah. Great. So these older fishers, they could 
skip a couple generations and really just tell you directly, this is how it's changed mm-hmm. and, and short circuit that. So what are they telling you? That they definitely have seen a lot of changes, particularly with the spiny lobster population. And I think one of the things that has been observed more recently, especially with the use of condos becoming more common or more condos being placed out in the waters, is that those fishers who are diving reefs pretty regularly are seeing less lobster on the reefs. And as I mentioned, they have a very particular function in helping to keep that ecosystem clean. They're eating up all the leftover bits of everything. That's why they taste so delicious. And as I mentioned also, there has not been a lot of ecological work done to understand what the impacts are of placing these condos in that direct path and essentially removing the lobster off of the reef from doing their quote-unquote job. Are there any population studies or do you see this on a path to becoming a solved problem or is it still like in need of funding and effort? I definitely think there is, there's a lot of effort that has to be done here, particularly around the ecological and biological impacts of the condos. Like my work focused more specifically on the social and cultural impacts and a little bit on the biological based on how the larvae move and all of that. But there's still a lot to be seen with regards to if condos continue to be a prevalent method of harvest, then we really need to understand like what they're doing and what the levels of the numbers that we suspect are out there are doing to the ecosystem. So this has answered a lot of questions for me, but it's generated a lot more. <laughs> so I'm going to have to digest a lot of what we talked about. Yeah. But uh, being cognizant of time and mm-hmm. your generosity, it's probably time to start to wrap things up. So uh, questions I always like to hear from people like yourself that are so deep into working on environmental causes is what has nature taught you about living life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, the biggest thing is that survival doesn't just happen. Like we see things in nature surviving lots of different threats, lots of circumstances, but they have developed like very cool adaptations to be able to do that. And I think applying that to life, you have to be able to adapt and pivot and find the conditions that work best for you to ensure that you keep going. Good advice. And I really, I like this question a lot. So if you could magically impart one ecological concept, and maybe that was it that you just said there, to help the public see the world as you see it, what would it be? Yeah, it's definitely adaptation. I'm always fascinated by the concept of adaptations. And I know we've been talking about marine species today, but I think plants are so cool. And one of the reasons I find plants to be so cool is because they have all these strange and great adaptations that allow them to survive in the craziest situations everywhere on the planet. And that includes in the water. So I always think about like, how do plants do this? It's just so wild and crazy. But with that, like change in nature is constant and it's really the responses to the changes that matter. Yeah. And I just, I feel obligated to shout out the podcast In Defensive Plants and Matt, (laughs) the host of that 
podcast, his whole mission is to help people get over their plant blindness. Like we take plants for granted for some reason, probably because yeah. they are everywhere. They have adapted <laughs> to so many conditions, but definitely worth checking mm-hmm. out. And what have you found to be effective in helping people move up a rung in terms of environmental awareness or their care for the environment? It's a couple of things. I think what's most effective in connecting folks with environmental awareness is one, not preaching at them and not talking down to them. I find that we as scientists, like we're smart, we know everything. So we're going to tell you what to do. And that does not work. It does not work with most communities. And I think what's equally as important is like finding ways to make it relevant to them and their lives. Because if they don't see the relevance in it, if they don't understand why it's beneficial to them, like not to us in general, but to them specifically, they're not going to care about it. And we really need to work on, I do this a lot in the work with my organization is thinking about when we craft communications, when we say we want to like put out a social media post about XYZ or create a flyer or poster, really thinking about who the audience is and adapting for that audience because they all have different needs and like creating the same thing for everyone is just not going to cut it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I have to chuckle as you say that because I've had to learn and relearn and remind myself of that lesson so many times in my life. Yeah, it's like interpretation 101, yeah. right? Know, know your audience. It's know your audience. And it maybe even goes a little bit beyond that because if you're working in a field deeply, so many things just become second nature thoughts to you that may not resonate mm-hmm. or may actually be in conflict with your audience. So it's not just know the right. audience, but recognize those implicit statements and subroutines and yeah. things that, that we all adopt as we gain more familiarity with the yeah. subject. Check your expert blind spots, yeah. as I always say. That's the word I was looking for, the expert blind spots. Yeah. This has really been a lot of fun, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. Thank you. If people want to follow your work, where can they go? I'm kind of on social media. I'm still working on being better at it. But they can find me on Instagram at science underscore in underscore color, and also on Twitter at sci underscore in underscore color. That's great. There's not going to be a ton there, but there's stuff there. I'll link to it nonetheless. And yeah, I, I, of course, like so many people have a love-hate relationship with social media. There are the bright spots, but there are also the downsides. (laughs) So what's up next for you? So for me, what I'm working on next, I'm still doing a lot of work related to fisheries. And I was actually recently selected as a National Geographic Explorer and provided funding to investigate the effects of COVID-19 on local subsistence fishing habits. So really looking at the impacts of the pandemic. So people losing jobs, having to go into lockdown, potentially not having enough money to feed their families and having to turn to social assistance programs, things like that. Looking at how those things potentially drove people that live in the Bahamas on some of the islands to return to fishing. Because one of the things that we noticed anecdotally, that there were lots of people fishing, not just folks who fish for a living, but you could drive down the side of the road or go to a local beach and there there would be families fishing during the pandemic. 
So what one of the things I want to look at is what were the drivers of that? But also, is there or was there potentially an ecological impact that we can note during those that year and a half, two years of shutdown period? I think it's pretty clear. We keep getting warning shots that there are going to be more infectious disease outbreaks, more pandemics mm -hmm. in the future. So that sounds like really beneficial work that unfortunately we're probably going to have to deal with again in the future. Yeah, yeah. It's very concerning. And one of the things culturally that we tend to hear here in the Bahamas is that the ocean will always be there. The sea will always be there. So if I need something, I can turn to the resources that I get from the sea and that is a belief that many people still have to this day. And we want to know, is that something that can be sustainable in the face of continued natural disasters? One of the things that has also impacted the Bahamas locally was Hurricane Dorian about two, three years ago. And then that was immediately followed by the pandemic. So is the sea something that can sustain livelihoods over time? as we continue to battle these quote-unquote catastrophes back-to-back. -back. Mm -hmm. That's definitely something that we need to get a better sense of. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy there are people like you that are helping <laughs> to wrap our heads around this and doing the hard work and working with the people on yeah. the front lines. With that, thank you again. I really appreciate you and the time that you spent today. And I hope we have opportunities to chat in the future. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me to do your podcast. I had a great time and definitely look forward to chatting more. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know, did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.